I think I say it every time, but I just, I love that line. The Spirit lit the flame, and what was lit there on that day of Pentecost just cannot be extinguished by any scheme or attempt of mankind to silence it. It's the gospel of the living God. And I love that follow-up line, the gospel. It shall not kneel. It bows to no one. It is ultimate truth. There is no competition. It has no rival. Amen. It is the word of the living God. And that is what we proclaim. That is why we have hope. That is why we carry on. In the midst of the ups and downs, this is hard sometimes. It's hard. Church is hard sometimes. We face opposition in the world. Um, But the gospel will be what stands at the end of it all. Jesus will be who stands at the end of it all. And we're told throughout his word that the church of the living God will stand with him. Amen. That is why we are joyful this morning as we celebrate again God's goodness and God's faithfulness. If it were up to us, this thing would have crashed and burned a long time ago. But it is not, and we praise God for that. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12. And again, as I just think about our church's history, I'm just so grateful for people. So grateful for people. And again, I was just reminded, uh, um, you know, um, just how good God has been here, too, over the past 25 years or so. And I hope it's not lost on you, and I know you all weren't here yesterday, but the fact, first of all, that a former pastor would drive 11 hours in one day to be here for a funeral, the fact that he could be here in this building with us, and and it's it's normal, it's celebrated, that's a gift and a blessing um, that God has given us uh, just that relationship and Jeff and Sherry and all their faithful years here. Certainly that did not show up in the video, but uh, that is a huge part of our story. And I just was so grateful for that yesterday, um, that uh, we could be here together. And it's, it's not even a, a thing. It's just uh, something to be celebrated, that the relationships are that strong. and um, It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Let's read Acts 12. I'm going to start at the very end. 25, and read up to 13, uh, verse 12. So Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So where we were last week when Dan preached, we were kind of this little parenthesis in the Acts story. So what that's referring to is back in Acts chapter 11 when the church of Antioch sent relief funds to Jerusalem to help the persecuted church there. And Paul and Barnabas delivered that gift to Jerusalem, spent some time there. Then we have the Peter narrative in Acts 12, and now this is picking back up. They've returned from Jerusalem, and now the story of Antioch continues in chapter 13. Now... There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you that we're a part of this story, this church We've been studying here in Acts, God, this movement that you initiated on the day of Pentecost. Uh, It's been used of you through the centuries as the means to proclaim the gospel in this world, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. So thank you, God, today that we don't stand alone. God, we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Something that's rooted and grounded in our chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So thank you that we can be a part of this. I pray today as we read about our brothers and sisters and, 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 and a church family from centuries ago in Antioch, God, that we would be encouraged and challenged by their faithful example, that we would learn today from your word, God. We pray that your spirit would take your truth, plant it deep in our hearts, God. May he reign here today. May he take your word and accomplish your work in us. The glory of Jesus Christ in the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Kathy, my wife, I know this won't shock any of you. She was the valedictorian of her high school class. Not, not surprising. If I had said I was the valedictorian of my class, I, you didn't have to agree that readily. Seriously. I was the salutatorian, all right? So there's that. But um, Kathy was the valedictorian. So she gave a speech. On graduation, I don't know if that's still a thing or not, but she gave a speech on, uh, and she's going to be so mad at me. She didn't know I was going to do that, so um, I may be sleeping on the couch here. And, uh, um, but uh, she gave a speech, and, and I don't think it was original to her. I think it's, a, it's an anecdote that's well known. But in her speech to her class as the valedictorian, she gave that, that little speech about uh, ships and how if ships stay in the harbor, uh, the sh- ships are safe. There's no threat usually to a ship in harbor, right? It's uh, probably not going to sink, not going to be subject to storms, um, unless it was a ship in West Michigan, then maybe it would. Um, but, uh, right, you have the ship in harbor, harbor there, it's, it's docked, it's secure, and it's safe. But the speech goes on to say, but that's not what ships are for. 
Ships aren't made just to sit in a harbor, right? It's decoration for a city. No, ships were made to sail. And if ships didn't sail and venture out of the harbor into the open sea, we wouldn't have travel, right? We wouldn't have commerce. A lot of things would not be what they are in our world without ships leaving harbor, safety, and going out. And uh, there's the picture of that. It's a Coast Guard ship there. And that's what ministry and life in this world can feel like sometimes, right? That's what happened in Antioch. Antioch itself, the church, Paul and Barnabas, were willing, uh, uh, as representatives of Jesus Christ, to leave and, and, and embrace some of the unknown to leave what felt safe to them. I mean, you had Paul and Barnabas as two of your lead pastors. <laughs> I don't know. You don't get much better than that. Give that up. Send them away. What is safe and secure is going away. We experienced a little bit of this a year ago, didn't we? We know this. This feels like a little bit. I think through the church of Antioch and through this passage, one of the things we're being challenged with is to be willing sometimes to leave safe for something bigger, for the sake of something bigger, to venture out, to be willing to open our hands and release for the sake of something bigger. The big idea of this passage is pretty simple, pretty obvious. It's the mission of Paul and Barnabas, the gospel spreading to new regions. Acts' geographical circle is growing. We've been to Jerusalem, we've been to Judea, we've been to Samaria. Now we're starting this foray into the uttermost parts of the earth, this missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. This movement is initiated by God through his spirit, as we read in the text. And this initiative by God is obediently supported by this model church of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas go and they boldly proclaim truth. They boldly face off against opposition. They were faithful. The church and Paul and Barnabas. And we see here that the gospel spread has not stopped in spite of the persecution that we read about even last week with Peter. The unstoppable force of the church of the gospel continues. So we're faced here with this church again, Antioch. And I want to suggest to you, it wasn't a perfect church. None of them ever are. We're at Cedarville last week and dropping my daughters off. And Dr. White told the students there, he said, you need to go find a church. This is the only Sunday morning of the entire year we have a service here on campus. And that's only because you, we don't want you and your parents going and overwhelming all the local churches in the area and their parking lots. And, um, but this is what he said. But after this, it's on you. And you need to go find a church to belong to. And he said, don't take a lot of time trying to find the perfect one because you won't do it. And he said, and if you do, what you need to do is take out your phone, take a picture of it, and then back away very slowly because you will mess it up if you stay there. <laughs> you know, There's no perfect church. Antioch wasn't the perfect church. There's a lot we can learn from Antioch. They had gifted leaders. They had a diversity in their leadership. They were engaged in corporate worship. They were seekers of God. We see that through their fasting They were active in discipleship. They were active in obedience. They were active senders. So I think there's a few things we could learn and be encouraged by, by the church of Antioch. And here's the thing, too. As we study Acts, it's not about us reading all of this and beating ourselves up and going, oh, man, see, we stink. We're not this. We're not that. No, I think what I would rather have us think about is is encouragement. Like, this is is what's possible. This this is what we can be through the power of, of the Spirit. And so let's be encouraged today as we read these things, right? So I want to take some lessons away here from a missional church, some lessons about what it is from a missional church, some lessons about the mission itself, so that we're encouraged and challenged to go out and continue 
what happened at Antioch, to continue what happened at Forest Hills or Eastmont years ago when people left Wealthy Park and came to this, the, the farmland of Eastmonts um, to do something new for the kingdom of God. They left the comforts of the mother church to step out for God. So here we go. Here's some lessons from a model church. First of all, solid leaders and teachers are crucial in a missional church. Solid leaders and teachers are crucial in a missional church. We're told right away, right, the presence of teachers and prophets. And what this implies is that Jesus Christ and his teachings were being faithfully proclaimed in the church. And that's what we need to continue to do in order to be missional, to faithfully proclaim Jesus, not human philosophies, not even the philosophies of the top Christian leaders. Jesus Christ first and foremost, right? Systematized intentional instruction and exhortation and correction. This is what we have to be committed to if we're going to be a missional church. And I think this teaching provided the solid foundation that prepared this church for the calling of their leaders to go away. It's what made this church love gospel ministry. It's what motivated them to send. They had spiritual maturity because they were exposed to teaching. And so when the ask was made of Paul and Barnabas The church responded with open hands. They had a foundation. They knew they were going to be okay because they knew who their God was. They're exposed to solid teaching. Here's the thing, though, too. It's easy to read this and go like, oh, yeah, okay, there needs to be solid teaching. So our hub group leaders, and we need to have good people in the pulpit and and this, this, and this. But there's something implied there when it said there was solid teaching in a church. right? That not only implies teachers, but it also implies what? Learners. Right? The terminology of discipleship that is used of, the, of Antioch in chapter 11. The, the, the disciple implies that as well. You have the disciple or you also have the disciple. So we need to be willing to expose ourselves to teaching. We need to sit under teaching. We need to have open hearts and open minds and be learners. So solid teachers and solid leaders are here. Uh, we see in, in, in Antioch that, uh, first of all, this, this teach, and I hope this isn't lost on you, this is a stacked teaching lineup. I mean, first of all, Paul and Barnabas, you have probably one of the, the greatest, you know, senior lead pastors in the history of the world in Barnabas, the great encourager, and then one of the greatest theologians that's ever lived in Paul, and then these other guys. I mean, this was an all-star team, <laughs> right? Uh, it, but here's another thing that stuck out to me, is uh, the, the, the diversity of these men. Um, most likely, um, Simeon, called Niger, was from North Africa. Uh, black, right? Uh, Lucius, Cyrene, from North Africa. So you had ethnic diversity. Manian, who is a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, friends of the king, you had, you had economic diversity represented in the leadership. Now, I don't see this. This isn't a prescriptive passage. It's not telling us, but I think there's some good, good takeaways from this. Right, too, just challenging us to, to make sure that we're a place where people feel comfortable no matter what walk of life they come from. I think on any given worship service, people could walk into the church of Antioch and be like, oh, I can identify. There's people here who understand me, people here who, who, who get me. I, I think there's something there just that we can take away as an example, that we tuck away and say, we need to be mindful of this. There's nothing worse than walking into a place and being like, no, I don't, I don't belong here at all. No one here would understand me. We want to be a place where we're, people can identify, you know, and, and, and feel like, oh, they would get me. And I remember this. When I start, you'll, you'll find this hard to believe. When I started at Cedarville, 
I started as a business administration major. You can laugh. Kevin's laughing. I, those of you who know me, it, and I did. I, I was going to do that in youth ministry because my dad and everyone's counting, like, you know, get, get a second major. That will help you in your, in your church ministry and so on. And I will never forget, I walked into the orientation for business administration and all the business admin majors were there. And I walked in the room and I sat down and I looked around and I'm like, nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> Not me. The guy's up there talking. He may as well have been speaking German. I'm like, I don't even know what you're saying. Like, I'm not, this is not my people, not my major, you know? And so I went with Com Arts instead, you know, people who talk a lot. And, um, right? But, but we don't want people walking into the church and being like, nope. They don't get me, you know? Maybe we can do a better job of reflecting some things that would make people feel welcome here, right? I think there's a good lesson here. Um, another lesson from Antioch. Spirit-directed ministry will characterize a mission church. Spirit-directed ministry will characterize a missional church. Now, again, here's the thing in Acts, right? And sometimes this is what makes it even tough to, to preach through Acts. You're, you're seeing a lot of the same themes, right? Luke is writing for a purpose. And so everything he writes about throughout the whole book is serving that purpose. And so he's going to keep recycling different themes. So this isn't new to us in the book of Acts, but it, these themes keep recycling a little bit, and they're nuanced differently. And so this isn't new to us in Acts, right? I mean, right away at Pentecost, Acts 2, we see the role of the Spirit. So we're not sitting here today going, oh, the Spirit has to be part of church ministry. I, duh. Like, no, we, we know this, right? But be reminded of it, because we know it, but do we always really own it and live it out functionally? The Spirit must be part of our ministry here. It must be directed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit spoke to them. While they were corporately worshiping and fasting, I think that's instructive for us. They're centered on God in worship and fasting. Prayer certainly would have been a part of this. Corporately. Now again, not prescriptive, but I think there's something to be learned here. The church gathered, worshiping and praying together, is a medium that God often speaks into. And history attests that some of the great revivals and movements throughout history were started when the church was corporately together praying. It's just the way it is. You may get tired of me hearing talk about that and talking about prayer meeting. Like, it's, how do you get away from it? It's the pattern in Acts. You see it. it. They're connected. The effectiveness of the early church and their commitment to be together in worship and prayer resulted in the move of God. That's where it is. It's into this context that the Spirit spoke to them. It implies and teaches us something about worship too, doesn't it? That in worship, I'm not just being entertained. I'm not just singing songs that make me feel good. Worship also involves listening. As I'm singing truth, as I'm reading truth, I'm listening to the Spirit of God. Worship is about engaging with God. We've made it so shallow in our culture today. What we see here also implies that worship and mission are side by side as far as key tasks of the church. Worship and mission are side by side as far as, in regard, as being key tasks of the church. So again, worship's not just about a feel-good experience. I come and I'm built up. That would be an incomplete view of what the church is about. 
R. Kent Hughes writes this. I like this. I think he captures it well. If we try to work for the Lord without worshiping him, we settle for legalistic, self-centered service. Actually, I think I got this quote up here. And if we worship and never work, we will end up with a form of godliness but no power. And I think sometimes, especially in an entertainment-based culture, Worship becomes this. It's something I'm just going to go and do, and I want to feel good. I want to sing songs that I like. But we don't understand that worship and work, service, go, go hand in hand. We see that here in Antioch. The word worship, we don't even have time to unpack that, but the word worship used here in this is actually the word for service. And it, comes, it brings to mind actually the acts of the priests in the temple. Worship implied work. So it's an act of service in and of itself. So worship and prayer are linked arm in arm with spiritual movements. We learn this from Antioch. We learn this from the church um, of Antioch. The fasting. Fasting is part of their practice. It's part of their worship Again, we see, okay, worship's not just about me getting, fasting. I'm, I'm setting aside something. Self-denial. I think this was key in Antioch, too, because as, as they're denying themselves through the discipline of fasting, I think one of the things to be pre- prepared for is to release Paul and Barnabas, to deny themselves that, this comfort of these leaders in their midst. But in all of this, they're setting aside the normal things of life to focus on what God Wants. So we see that spiritual concern characterizes this church. And I think this is why they obeyed and mobilized as quickly as they did. They had a spiritual awareness. So when God asked them to do something hard, they were ready to do it. Because they were rooted and grounded in teaching, and they worshipped well, and they understood that worship implied service. They fasted. Their focus was on God. So the Spirit speaks. Set apart Paul and Barnabas. And he calls them into ministry. I think this too, understanding this, spirit-led calling, spirit-directed ministry, this is what sustains us in ministry. Paul and Barnabas were going to face some hard things. Paul was going to face some hard things. And I think throughout his ministry experience, looking back and remembering that God himself called me is what sustained him in ministry. Listen, ministry here is not always easy. You're like, my Ignite kids are nightmares. <laughs> that youth group kid, never going to listen. Am I doing the right thing? Should I even be involved in this ministry? I got the wrong guy. Listen, the Spirit of God has called you. The Spirit of God opened the door for ministry for you. If the Spirit of God confirmed that ministry through leaders and deacons and elders and so on, going, yes, step in and minister then in the midst of the hard, you can say, I don't know what's going on. This is discouraging, but I know God has called me here. So when we are allowing our ministry here to be spirit-directed, we can cling to that and find hope in that, even in the difficult, dry times of ministry, because they will come. Keith Jones and I were talking about this yesterday, our ministry in Italy. We're, 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 we're talking about his book, uh, Lectures to My Students, that Spurgeon wrote many, many years ago. And he has a whole chapter on it, on the, the, the minister's fainting fits. And I said, it's funny, I just read Lloyd-Jones this week, and Lloyd-Jones was writing about how like, he never had opened himself up more to discouragement and barren feelings and feeling like he's in a desert than when he stepped into ministry. 
Spurgeon's whole chapter of his book talked about just spiritual depression that came from ministering to people. And Keith and I were like, man, we are not alone. Because if Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon felt like this, then we're not the losers that we think we are, you know, sometimes. No, right? It's part of ministry. But when I can go back and say, the Spirit of God called me, that's when I find strength and encouragement. It was part of the ministry at Antioch. So we must be prayerful, prayerfully asking God for help and direction and ministry. And when God leads, we obey, right? The missional church prays, releases, and sends. And they had this outward focus. Antioch released these men to go. What I love about this, and what I think the lesson here for us, is that Antioch church was not just concerned about their own body right there in the city of Antioch. They were outward focused. They sacrificed and committed to ministry beyond themselves. And we must do the same. We must not just be concerned about our own needs and wants here at Forest Hills. Our main goal can't just be our well-being or what makes us feel good. And we may need to take some steps sometimes, and I think we took some last summer, that maybe seem harmful or hurtful to us in the short term, but will be for greater kingdom purposes in the long term. Again, here, this church, this is two of their most gifted leaders. I'd say two of the most gifted church leaders in the history of the church. In a church here that still probably had many needs in Antioch, integral parts of the community. I mean, these five men were their church staff, and God is asking for two of them to leave. And Antioch gives it up. That focus. That's what I love. Years ago, we take a harvest offering. We've often taken a harvest offering here in the fall. And I think that started, Kevin, that may, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, when we saw some, like, physically, like, we had to redo the children's wing. Let's, let's do a special offering in the fall. And that, that's a good thing. Let's give people an opportunity to give to it, and, you know, piano and things like that. But at some point along the way, the idea came up, like, maybe every once in a while, our harvest offering should be for something outside of ourselves. It was a good move. So we take an offering to help the marshals start a cafe, in France, to help minister to people. Romania, we're going to take a harvest offering so we can send to Andrew and Leah Postuma so that they can have some money to help buy property for camp in Romania. Like, we have to continue to think about that and not just be caught up in, in what do we need here and what are our wants here. Antioch had that outward focus. I know that there's missionaries over the years who struggled and, and it's, it, it's hard to say there's a right or wrong in this, or who's right and who's wrong, but, but I understand the struggle. Missionaries who've struggled over the years with churches back in the States who spend millions of dollars on, on things and, 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 and their buildings and some technology and sometimes uh, these, these exorbitant additions and say, and that, that's not wrong and sinful, I want to be careful, I'm not judging those churches, but, but can that ever be balanced too with saying, why we spend millions of dollars on some of those things here, can't we not be aware that maybe there's some unreached People groups and such could use millions of dollars to help the gospel go to them, right? And, and having that outward perspective, I understand that struggle. Daryl Bach writes this in his commentary. We build churches not just to go into for worship, but also to go out with God's heart for people. This isn't just about us and we have a cool place to come to on Sunday morning. Ultimately, this is about us being mobilized to do something bigger than ourselves. We learn this from Antioch. God sometimes will ask for our best. Ajit Fernando, 
who's a pastor in Sri Lanka, he laments that the perspective in the United States and the American church sometimes is that we're not going to waste our best and our brightest minds on things like ministry and foreign missions. What a tragic way of thinking, and he's not wrong. I've heard people say it. We do this with our kids. All missions is for someone else. My kid's too smart for missions. We buy into the American ideal of, well, they need to, man, God's gifted them. They need to go. They need to make money. They need to do this, this, and this. Well, maybe God can. Todd DeKrager, God used his medical mind in Togo. God's going to ask us some things. We need to be willing, like Antioch did sometimes, to give the heart. I've thought about that with my own kids, right? I've been a pastor, been a youth pastor for years. I've said, you know, hey, we need to be willing to release our own children to the mission field. And I go drop my daughters off at college, and I'm like, oh, I hate releasing them to the next state. <laughs> and I thought about that a lot this week. God, I have open hands. If you asked Hannah to go to Togo to be a nurse, I have open hands. <sighs> wow. Yeah. What am I going I love Doug. I don't even remember it. When, when, when his daughter got married. Doug, and I I might not get this completely right, but Doug's daughter serves overseas in missions. And he talked about how she asked something about going overseas, Doug. And correct me if I'm wrong later, but you said something along the lines of, that's not my, that's not for me to answer. Something along those lines, that's not up to me. I've never forgotten that. It was his speech right down here for the reception. Open hands. Antioch had open hands. God, will surrender our best if that's what you ask of us. I'm also struck that, not just that they were willing to do this, but that they were able to do it. Like, you think about it. The Antioch church was able to surrender these two dynamic leaders and still survive. We know they survived. We know they continued to thrive because Paul and Barnabas based themselves in there for multiple missionary journeys over years. The Antioch church was able to survive losing their two greatest leaders. What does that tell me? It tells me this, that discipleship was accomplished at the church of Antioch at such an intense level. It didn't depend just on these two guys. They did such an intense job of discipleship that they were able to send these men away and release them and still function and survive and thrive as a church. I love that. And remember, too, right, Paul and Barnabas couldn't zoom in from Cyprus. <laughs> you know, they weren't texting every once in a while going, hey, just make it, oh, we need to have a conference call with you guys. Get on Zoom tonight. We'll help solve the problem. No, they gone. <laughs> and the church survived and thrived. Are, are we accomplishing discipleship at that level? Are we committing to that? Sometimes I'm not sure we want to give what that requires of us. But they modeled this so well. They talk about the best college football teams, programs. You know, one of the, one of the metrics they'll, they'll talk about in a season, they're like, this team lost seven NFL draft picks last season. That's a lot. And that happens. You're big-name programs. But those teams continue to churn out NFL draft picks, top talent, and there's a terminology. They reload. And they continue to able to stay... Competitive, and what they say is that what that speaks to is not necessarily the talent that's there, but the program. And those teams have a program 
that when someone leaves the NFL, their top stars leave, the next guy steps in because they've prepped them so well. They've discipled them so well. And there's no loss, no drop-off. That's what we need to be as a church. That any of us could leave leaders and there wouldn't be any drop-off because we've done discipleship in ministry so well. They send them off after praying and fasting. Right? There we see the prayer again, the fasting. They send them off. They identify with them. That's what the laying on of hands is. And I just want to challenge us to care so deeply about foreign missions. That's what the laying on of hands is. It's an identification. We are with you. As you go, we go. Do you care about foreign missions? Right? There are practical ways we will show that we care about foreign missions. Antioch cared about what was going to go on in Cyprus and wherever else Paul and Barnabas would go. And I just want to challenge you that Keith and Debbie Jones or Jenda Krieger or Dan Cook or Stephen Becky Dye, that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Forest Hills Baptist Church has their back, that people here care about them. I love it when, I have, when we have missionaries come back and they say, I get emails from your people asking me how I'm doing. I get emails from your people in response to our prayer letters. They're like, they actually read our prayer letters. Yes, read prayer letters. Your hub groups that you're in, they have missionaries assigned to them. Find out who they are, and as a hub group, own that. Talk about it. Care deeply about foreign missions. Identify with them the way the Antioch church laid their hands on these men and identified with them. The missional church will have people who obediently go and proclaim the word. Paul and Barnabas, they go. They leave. And they proclaim the word of God. We've talked about this over and over again throughout Acts. It's the proclamation of the word of God. That is where the power is. That's what changes lives. So as we interact with the unbelieving world around us, our coworkers, our friends at school, make sure you give them God's truth. Make sure you give them God's word. That's where the power is. That's what Paul and Barnabas proclaims. All right? The mission of the church will always be opposed by forces of darkness. Well, yeah, we've seen this already. We saw it in Samaria, right? Simon Magus, the magician that they encountered there in Samaria. It's happening again here on the island of Cyprus. They encounter this Jewish magician, this false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Ironically enough, their first major opponent to the gospel's name means son of Jesus. <laughs> no connection of Jesus of Nazareth, obviously. Jesus, Joshua was a common name. Um, so Jesus, uh, the son of Jesus, was the name of this, this, this sorcerer, this magician. He apparently had some kind of advisory role, or at least a position of influence with Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul there. It wasn't uncommon for the rulers, uh, Roman rulers, to have spiritual advisors. That's what this man served as. So we see another confrontation, though, between God's representatives and evil. Again, this is a spiritual battle. This is a reality. Spiritual battles exist Spiritual warfare exists. It's not just some C.S. Lewis or Tolkien fantasy. It really exists. We see that unfold here again. That's why we must know the truth. That's why we must be people who are prayed up. That's must, why we must be in the spirit, because that's what we're going to encounter. And listen, we're not always going to encounter it here the way it's encountered in other places. I remember one time in Brazil, uh, one of the camp directors, David, was, was shocked that I, we had never seen like an animal sacrifice uh, or the remains of an animal sacrifice on the streets of Grand Rapids. You know, Brazil, you'll see that. 
Uh, years ago, this haven't happened in years and years, but Dan would say, you know, years ago, there were times they'd open the camp gates in the morning and they would see the remains of a, of a satanic uh, um, ritual right there on the street where someone had sacrificed an animal as an attempt to attack the camp. And David couldn't, couldn't believe that. He's like, you've never seen that. And Dan, in his wisdom, he looked at David, he goes, yeah, David, you got to, what you've got to understand is that Satan doesn't always operate the same way. Different places. Here, it's a lot more open. In the United States, not as much, but he's still very active. He's still at war. He just uses weapons of materialism and of distraction and recreation, other things. But he's still very active. That's what we're engaged in, spiritual warfare. Elemis, we see here as... Paul and Barnabas try to proclaim the word of God to Sergius Paulus that he actively opposes it. He's trying to draw these men, this man away from Jesus. Uh, Paulus is, is the target. He, he's the goal. He's the man that is seeking, and, and he's the one that Paul and Barnabas see the man who needs Jesus. And, and, and this magician is intentionally trying to draw him away. Maybe he resists so strongly because he's heard of the conversions that have happened across the island. I think this, I think he resists because he knows what they're proclaiming is true. Satan doesn't waste his time resisting untruth. So if you're facing opposition, in a way, be encouraged by that. Because if what you're proclaiming is true, that's when Satan counterattacks. That's what happens here. So understand this. If you engage, you will be opposed. If you engage, you will be opposed. And this leads many to fearfully sit out, right? If you sit on the bench, you'll never strike out. But if you sit on the bench, you'll never have the game-winning hit either, right? I love this quote. There's a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith, and you will never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue, and you will never be rejected. Never give your heart, and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus, and you'll never be subject to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Seriously follow Christ, and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. There is opposition and voices that are blinding people to the truth. We need to be willing to speak to that. And you may be sitting here today and believing this Christianity thing or not quite sure what to make of this Christianity thing. I just want to tell you lovingly, the world is lying to you. And anything you believe that's contrary to anything in this book is a lie. And there's an active enemy who's trying to keep you from the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who wants to rescue your soul, give you abundant life and eternity with him. And any voice that speaks otherwise than that is a lie leading to your destruction, and that's his end game for you. Paul and Barnabas understood that. That's why they were so passionate about speaking to Paulus. So we understand that the mission of the church requires courage and boldness. That's why Paul looks at this man intently. Imagine being on the other end of that look. Paul looked at him intently. You ever get in a look? I get it from my wife all the time. That's a bad look. There's a bad look to be on the other side of, right? And this was a bad look to be on the other side of. Paul looks at him, <laughs> basically, you child of the devil, full of deceit, full of this, 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 and Paul just lays him out. Hmm. Paul's response helps us understand. I mean, this is a harsh response. 
helps us understand that any worldview that opposes truth is not simply an innocent alternative opinion or option. In Paul's answer here, we see a complete rejection of syncretism. It's an important point in our day and age. Amen? God and the gospel mixes with nothing. Don't be afraid to call that out. I don't recommend going around and calling down judgment on people and blindness. But there is a time to boldly speak out. And in our age of tolerance, that doesn't sit real well. There's a loving way to do this. And I challenge you to just don't be afraid to speak truth boldly. And understand this too. Paul wasn't in error when he said this. Paul wasn't speaking out of frustration or anger. It says the Spirit came upon him. And I wonder this too. This is conjecture on my part. Paul pronounces blindness on him. Sound familiar? Is there another guy in Acts who experienced a period of blindness, a temporary period of blindness, while he thought through truth? I wonder if this was a very merciful. This is temporary. I wonder if Paul was recounting his own experience. Maybe there's hope here for LMS. Maybe that's part of Paul's thinking. Be blind. Have to be led around a little bit by your hands. See that you're not all that. And maybe the God of the universe will break through to you like he broke through to me. And lastly, be encouraged by this. The mission of the church will be effective and vindicated. God does act. He does strike him blind. He does authenticate the gospel message. And this will happen. God will authenticate his truth. He will. Uh, uh, Ted prayed that this morning. I love how he prayed about that this morning. God, show your truth to be right. He will. Keep faithfully proclaiming it. Keep faithfully proclaiming it. Let's be a church on mission. It's willing to release. Here what we see is that an intelligent Roman government official comes to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on up. I want us to think about these messages, these examples. Just challenge as we close to have a concern for foreign missions. Be interested. Are we willing to go? Maybe some of us here need to respond to a call to go serve God overseas. Are we missional? Do we have open hands here? Not just willing to release to open, but maybe it's released to, I think maybe some ministry things need to change at Forest Hills. Maybe we need to shift some schedules or maybe do some things. And these things like, no, I like it the way it is. Antioch would say, open hands. I'm willing to change and shift for the sake of something bigger. Are we willing to invest in the type of discipleship that would enable us to send people away and maintain effective ministry? Are we too dependent on the few? When the Holy Spirit calls us and is behind our work, understand this by way of application. We will be successful and effective if we're in his power. Remember that missionary work involves confrontation with enemy forces. Beware of syncretism and follow your marching orders. If Jesus Christ says go, you need to go. Sing here as we close. A song of hope that captures the end game. That if we're faithful, God will vindicate. We have something to look forward to that won't disappoint as we serve him. Amen.